This is the E-Commerce Brain Trust, a podcast about building momentum online for established consumer brands. Join our hosts and their expert guests for high-level conversations about e-commerce strategies, trends, and innovations. Access our Brain Trust and boost your brand's e-commerce potential. Hello and welcome to the E-Commerce Brain Trust podcast. I'm your host, Kiri Masters from Bobsled Marketing. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Hey, if you've been following this podcast for a little while, I want to ask you a favor. I know that a lot of hosts pop up and ask for this as well, but I just sat down and opened up my Apple Podcasts app and I went through the podcasts that I subscribe to and listen to often and I wrote... I dashed off a uh, a two or three sentence review for each of the podcasts that I'm listening to. It doesn't take much. It means a lot to to me and anyone else out there that also hosts podcasts. Getting reviews in, especially in the Apple Podcasts ecosystem, is a huge driver of new listeners and helps to tell me what content you're interested in, what topics you want to hear more about, what kind of guests you want to hear more from. I would really appreciate that. I've been doing this podcast for three or four years now, actually. And um, it's it's one of those mediums where you're sort of speaking into the void a lot of, a lot of the time. It would be great to get some feedback from you and um, hear what you're interested in learning about in the future. So with that aside... I'm super excited to get into this topic today around total growth accountability in e-commerce. And this is some research that my two guests today have conducted at the Digital Shelf Institute. And this is sort of a think tank in the e-commerce space that I've been involved with for last year and a half or so as well. My research into profitability in e-commerce was born out of the Digital Shelf Institute and it's definitely worth a a follow or an introduction as Molly explains at the end of this episode. So the Digital Shelf Institute comes out with this research. This particular research was um, investigated and authored by Molly and Chris and um, it talks about, it lays out the barriers that stand in the way of maximum growth for brands and posits the four shifts that are needed to maximize market share across all channels. So what are the issues standing in the way of, of brands and how to overcome them? And it's it's pretty complicated stuff and the feedback from the report has been really positive Um, as we get into later in this episode. So before we jump into the discussion, I'll just um, give a quick intro to Molly and Chris. Throughout her career, Molly Chantal has been a pioneer in connecting technology to business growth, including the first ever mobile email solution. At Wrigley, Molly led the global development of one of the first 30 million plus uh, Facebook fan pages in the CPG industry, Skittles, uh, and the first sustained global outside innovation program, developing a program that connects marketing and e-commerce business challenges to Silicon Valley startups. She has also built the first cross-functional sales and marketing cross-segment 
confections, pet and food, global demand technology roadmap at Mars, tripling central funding for those initiatives in just over three years. She now leads Salsify's customer, executive and industry communities, uh, one of those being the very important Digital Shelf Institute. And also introducing Chris Perry. Chris Perry is on a mission to help empower first movers, both people and brands, to win in a disruptive marketplace. He is the Chief Learning Officer at First Mover, which is an e-commerce empowerment fueled by community of practice. As a CPG e-commerce practitioner, executive educator, and advisor, he has led e-commerce at Reckitt Benkiser, Wellpet, and Kellogg's, and was most recently VP of Executive Education at Edge by Essential. So welcome to the show, Molly and Chris. Thank you. We're excited to be here. Thank you. <laughs> so Molly, could you tell us a little bit about what made this research necessary? How did this come onto your radar? Sure. I host a group of executives that we call the Digital Shelf Institute Executive Forum. There's about 150 of us and 30 to begin with. So it's grown quite a bit over the past year. And what we do is we meet to discuss what's top of mind in terms of growing digital shelf presence and e-commerce expansion and all of the other stuff that comes along with the shift from the way things used to be for big brands into the future. And as you might imagine, there's a lot of growing pains. And one growing pain in particular is profitability, um, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Uh, and that growing... That's something about that. Yeah, I've heard that you maybe have an opinion on that. Um, and that growing pain in particular is so multifaceted. Uh, and we started hearing a lot of the brand execs in this group talk about their struggles with profitability. Uh, but we also heard some brand execs who were struggling a little bit less talking about some of the beliefs and behaviors that were driving their ability to capture a lot of the growth in their categories over the past year. And in speaking with Chris, we started to notice that there were patterns emerging um, of the people complaining versus the people succeeding. And we started to name those patterns. And that's where we came up with this idea of the shift from an old way of working to a practice that um, we call, and I think was coined by someone at Mars, total growth accountability. Excellent. That's that's a really great backdrop for this because that is where you landed on in, in terms of labeling the solution that Chris and yourself landed on here with the total growth accountability research and, and series of educational series that you put out to the world back in July of this year. So could you walk us through at a higher level and there's four beliefs and behaviors and shifts that you propose in the report? Let's spend a little bit of time walking through those. 
Sure. So um, why don't I define total growth accountability and then I'll hand it over to Chris to talk a little bit about some of these shifts. Um, I realize sometimes when you introduce a new term, uh, defining it sort of makes way for better conversations. So the way that we're defining this idea of total growth accountability is the practice of measuring and considering all of the aspects of omni-channel shopping experience and making holistic decisions and investments that drive overall business results um, versus keeping strategy and goals separate by marketing, sales, online, and offline. So it's a little bit funny <laughs> that we're sort of suggesting you run your business like a business <laughs> is our solution. But um, a lot of what exists as reality inside modern organizations now is this separation of marketing versus e-commerce and the separation of an online and offline business, when in reality, um, there's so many connections between functions and between those worlds of online and offline, that it's just shooting yourself in, in the collective feet, shooting yourself in all the feet, all the shooting in all the feet, um, to keep them separate. And, no, and, and, and to build on that, you know, we, we talked about a couple different drivers that got us to this, you know, again, these symptoms that various you know, members of, of, the, of the forum kind of flagged and that we've experienced in our own, you know, and I'm sure, Kiri, you and, and many of your, uh, you know, partners and clients have faced as well. As Molly spoke to that, really the, the underlying thing, and it sounds so basic to say, but, it, but it's not how we operate as an industry today, is this idea that everything affects everything. Because whether it's functional silos or channel silos or online versus offline silos, or hey, as a shopper, what I saw here only can affect me here and can't affect me over there or drive my, my behavior over there. And then ultimately the reality that all things are being matched and, and monitored and acted and activated uh, in real time, often without human intervention anymore because of algorithms and, and these machines, right? That, and AI and all this technology that's enabling a, a much faster paced world that, that you know, and we, we as shoppers, uh, sample sizes of one or a few here, are, are living influenced by many things and behave and activate somewhere else. And so with so much breakdown and blurring of, of, the, of the original silos and separation of church and states that we've seen across here, we really get to this idea of total growth accountability, which is really driving kind of four best practices. And, and Molly and I, can, we can kind of break these up because they're really interesting. They, they, they feed each other. They all flow together, but they are separate things. And so what we kind of found is the four core best practices or beliefs that will get you going long-term. We're seeing some brands out there use these. Um, to be fair, I don't know if we've seen one brand use all of them yet. So there's an opportunity for everyone. It's runway here. But there's kind of four best practices, and we'll break these out a little bit. But there's this idea of the first one being price matching proactivity. In a world where pricing is visible to everyone, and algorithms are actually matching in real time based on you know, rules that are in their system. There is no human buyer or merchant making a lot of these decisions now. Uh, pricing is at the sole discretion of the algorithm, even though that algorithm is owned by the retailer. So that creates a lot of interesting complexities here. Um, we've got 
Number two, we'll talk to is dynamic portfolio management. And we'll under, because, because there's an impact to what we sell, not just what price it sells at. Um, there's also that, as Molly talked about, the functional integration um, and, and, and merging of sales and marketing as the line between those no longer exists that same way. And then naturally, you know, at the end of the day, it's where the money flows um, and where it comes in, it's budget fluidity, right? And, and making sure the budget and the funding and the investment can move where the world needs to go, where the puck is being, you know, it has been hit and where it's moving. And so, um, you know, in, in kind of kicking off here, price matching proactivity, this is near and dear to my heart, having been in the trenches and faced what many of, of you know, our listeners here may have, have suffered from, right, is seeing multiple price points drop, again, at the discretion of the retailer in the market, causing profitability issues, causing channel conflict, causing internal conflict as people didn't understand why or how it was changing and just came to the e-com team or myself to go solve this or fix this, which I always found funny because you can't fix pricing, but somehow we were supposed to fix it illegally, um, which wasn't the case, but we, you know, Always an interesting. Let's double click on that, Chris. <laughs> yeah, well, well, when you have a price matching issue in the marketplace internally, a lot of times people are like Chris, your retailer is causing this problem. How are you going to fix that? And you're like, well, fixing pricing is illegal, <laughs> so I can't. Um, but 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 what I can do is point out the root causes of the issue if I dig deep enough. That potentially we were causing um, because of how we were approaching this this new ever connected omni-channel space. And so speaking to this, there's a couple things. Some of you out there may very have adopted this, but we have to get everyone to adopt this thinking and mindset. In today's omni-channel, transparent, dynamic marketplace, we need to assume not manufacturer suggested retail price, not MSRP. That's a nice, that's a pipe dream at this point. We need to assume that whatever lowest promoted price we allow in the marketplace or that we've enabled in the marketplace, um, even if it's not what normally is being promoted or, or priced. Yeah. yeah. Assume that lowest promoted price somewhere will be matched as the new price everywhere. Mm-hmm. And that is literally happening all day long um, across thousands of SKUs. And that's because these items are being sold everywhere, right? Like we, we were in a mass distribution mindset, right? We want to sell and maximize ACV. We want a more efficient portfolio to be in every channel with very slight variations by size or count, um, where occasionally we'd we'd entertain a differentiated or an exclusive item for a really big retailer or club or something where they they demand it, but they merit it because of their scale, their size, the value of the partnership, right? So, but what we're seeing though, is the brands that maybe have stumbled in some cases upon solutions here, are those who start starting to differentiate what they sell to key retailers and start creating more exclusivity. That's not new, but, but it's an opportunity to scale that allows retailers to own something that's meaningful to the shopper, meaningful to the brand, is going to be invested in, can be promoted, but won't cause that lowest promoted price to become mm. a problem. And so, so it, this idea of proactively managing this price matching environment with unique items because you know ultimately that lowest promoted price that's enabled is not going to be sustainable for anyone to keep selling by creating exclusivity you don't have to worry about the price matching to the same level 
But this requires some, some approaches. You're not going to suddenly have completely unique item portfolios overnight with every retailer. It's going to have to start with certain internal thresholds being massaged to allow for hero items or tentpole items to start so that you have something big that you can double down with on a, on, on, with a key retailer online. Yeah. Build the case for more over time and build that partnership that way. Love it. Um, any thoughts, Molly? I want to get carried away here. No, no, you got it. The, the one other thing we heard a lot of people talk about was MAP or minimum advertised price policies. And a lot of times, you know, to be fair, usually companies go to that as a solution. Hey, we've got these issues in the market. We can't suddenly create all these exclusive items overnight. We need, we need to get a map policy or we need to strengthen our map policy to protect us. And they're not wrong in thinking that that's a tool in the toolbox to help solve yeah. the problem. It is not the solution or the strategy. Yeah. It's got to be part of the solution because map is only as valuable as the root causes you've removed to enable map to work as just general guard. You know, there's always going to be criminals in the, in, in the world, but there are laws to prevent those from kind of from stepping over the line so that then arguably the criminals are easier to catch, right? And, and to spot, right? So um, you, you want the policy in place to prevent unnecessary stretching of the rules and, 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 and the rules of engagement and to give you the, the legal foothold to go resolve issues when they come up. But it itself isn't going to stop everyone from doing what normal, you know, free capitalistic marketplaces will allow things to do, especially when they're run by algorithms. So this price matching world is a really important one to prepare for because it's happening to us, but it is our problem to solve. The retailers will happily dump us over time if we can't figure this out for our companies. Um, they want us to figure it out and they want to help, but but at the end of the day, they are only one player in the, on the game as well. And if we don't if we don't own it proactively, understanding the nuances that are going to come our way and build around that, then we will not be the partner of choice for a lot of our retailer, uh, you know, JBP partners long term. Great. Let's talk about dynamic portfolio management. Molly has some cool uh, thoughts on this as well. I, I would say this bl blurs really nicely from that price matching discussion, go going kind of into this idea of exclusivity, but now at scale and with purpose, right? So you could say, hey, I don't want price matching. I'm just going to quickly throw a, a different color or a different flavor up on an Amazon just to get me something different so that I have something that won't be price matched. And that's not necessarily wrong. And arguably, you're not doing that without the shopper in mind, right? Arguably, that flavor, that color is something the shopper wanted as a variant of your product. But we can do better than that, right? We can be more thoughtful than that. And what's interesting is we're seeing a number of category players, like, for instance, players in toys. Toys is a more developed category online. And in some markets, the, the number of retailers selling toys at scale online or omni-channel has shrunk to a few. And so like Amazon, Walmart, and Target in the US. And so there are a number of toy manufacturers who have done a very thoughtful job of managing a national brand portfolio, but with very exclusive series or sub-series or line extensions by each of those retailers to the point that they are like completely insulated from price matching. There's an entire portfolio that can be marketed at the holidays or at key at Prime Day without any shopper loss 
or, or, or loss of equity, loss of shopper, you know, positive shopper experience without profitability issues. And so not that we are, we are all in the toy category, but we can take a page from those books. And, and we're seeing a number of major CPG retailers that, you know, not in toys or electronics kind of doing the same thing. We're seeing P&G hmm. create unique, exclusive brands of products for Walmart. Um, you know, we're seeing Target bring in exclusive digital brands on their own, right? Without the national brand support at that point. But what P&G is kind of doing the opposite and bringing those exclusive brands to Walmart. So we're seeing, you know, but, but each of those brands has like a shopper centric purpose. And so there, there are a lot of opportunities to bring exclusivity in. Um, but, but Molly, we also saw some of our brands, uh, some of the forum members and some examples in the market of, of where we were talking about like that dynamic portfolio management of capturing occasions and seasons. I don't know if you wanted to speak to one or two of those. Yeah, so it was a practice of being more opportunistic um, as it relates to looking at what kinds of products and SKUs and variants you could add into the marketplace. Um, looking at tribes of or subsegments of consumers and then with more agility than in the past, so smaller product development life cycles, testing out some of these new sort of tribe focused variants in specific markets based on the perceived opportunity for capturing that occasion or that moment or that flavor or that pack type in that market, which is also a form of creating exclusivity, but to me is, is sort of more opportunistic and proactive than sort of what did we sell last year? We need to protect our margins. Let's make this a little bit different. So that's a little bit of a different spin on the same theme. And then of course, the medium of omnichannel and e-commerce allowing you to enter new variants into the marketplace and test their viability quite quickly at the same time, um, protecting and creating value for both you and Amazon, uh, the brand that did this practice or practiced this, um, saw that it increased um, both their margins and Amazon's profitability. And it, I think the imperative here, uh, Kiri, too, uh, for, for all of our listeners is, and, and I, I always like to put a little productive paranoia out there. Like if we don't do this, even though doing this is probably the right thing to do, to Molly's point, there are tribes of consumers or segments of consumers or occasions that are very shopper appropriate and opportunistic to capture that online, especially, but the, the ever growing omnichannel world enable us to actually be able to tap into. Um, if we don't do this, the retailer or someone else will do this for us because they're already doing this for us now. The private brands are being accelerated in a huge way and they're no longer the cheapo store label that looks, you know, looks crappy next to the national brand that says compare to. Those are there. But now they're like brands with founders and with 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 on trend purposes and 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 you know and seg you know, filling new gaps and opportunities in, in in various category segments or subcategories. And then all those digital brands that found a little niche and went after that are then being brought in by the Targets and the WalMarts and the the Boots, uh, you know, and Walgreens alliances of the world. They're like these brands are finding their way into the physical store too because they differentiated and then again, arguably yeah. also had total growth accountability. So the retailer arguably needs total growth accountability too, 
but the digital challenger brands had total growth accountability and look where, where it's getting them on the national omni-channel scene. And so I just say that if we don't do it, they will do it. And then we will be displaced and then we'll be forced to do it. So we might as well do it now. <laughs> yeah, I think that's some good color. I'm, I'm glad that you said that because as, as I was listening to the description of that, I was thinking, wow, this is the imperative really needs to be there for such a potentially costly and complex solution is what you're proposing. And so that, that fire under the tail really needs to be there, which is, you, you're right, these the private label brands, the niche digital brands that are very extremely opportunistic and can move very, very quickly, that's what is threatening in, incumbents. I, I will say the, the one thing I, whenever I've heard people, you know, who challenge this, this like, well, gosh, if you're saying we need exclusivity and we need to be creating like occasion-based products that pop in and out even faster than our traditional seasonal packs and things like that, like that's so inefficient. Like it'll never meet our internal, you know, hurdle rates or our thresholds. And, and, and I'd say, agreed, you may have some constraints today that limit what you can do, but I'll be a little bit snarky here. What happens when your business starts to decline because others did this instead of you, big brands and small brands alike, and then now your hurdle rate got lowered because you're just not as big a business. So do you want to wait for the hurdle rate to lower because you're not, because that's your only, you know, like I'd rather do it now and like take the hit on the quote unquote inefficiency, figure out how to make it efficient, both from a shopper, a brand and a retailer centricity approach and, and, and then be the winner as opposed to not not being the early mover here and finding myself later in a position where I'm doing it reactively. And and now I actually I can do it now because my I've lost so much market share in sales that I don't have the same hurdle rates anymore. Right? I, I'd take anything at this point. So I, I'm being a little snarky because I know it's not that cut and dry, but like it's the early mover advantage really matters. And early mover doesn't mean 180 degree spin. It's like one step in the right direction. Great. I want to make sure that we get through the the last two um, functional integration and merging of sales and marketing and budget fluidity. Would would you be able to give us the the headlines from those so that we can uh, make sure people get a at least a quick overview of those? Yep, we got to carry. So um, functional integration is really about bringing sales and marketing together. Um, we know that in the past marketing owned consumer and brand equity and sales owned shopper and trade partnerships. And the two have collaborated, but more like um, a handoff and a relay race, I guess now that we're in Olympic season, rather than working against the same KPIs. Um, however, it's, it's pretty obvious if you look at a digital shelf that multiple parts of that shelf are represented um, by different parts of the funnel. Uh, Chris and I have this great graphic where you can see um, the result of an Amazon product search and you know three, quarter, three quarters of the page real estate is, is really a uh, paid opportunity. And so we're starting to see a ton of brands, including most publicly Nestle, um, announced that their commerce and marketing teams are now joined um, and that commerce and marketing operations fall under the same practice in the same team. One of the more radical, um, I suppose, radical in quotes, um, practices that we've seen is moving from ROAS to share of voice by channel. So focusing on category and brand dominance, inclusive of both media marketing and e-commerce tactics, um, sort of channel by channel, um, looking at 
add inventory as a percentage of total space available, um, and then taking all of the tools they have in their belt, whether or not you would call those shopper marketing tools, media tools, marketing tools, or digital shelf tools, and shooting to get um, a share of voice well above um, their share of category sales to ensure uh, that you're driving disproportionate visibility versus your competition. And one of our members was able to capture 75% of COVID-related growth in their category using that tactic. Um, And that kind of lends itself to the next point, which is budget fluidity. So if you're going to say that we're going to operate as one sales and marketing and address um, a, a channel or a platform like a Walmart or an Amazon or a Target, um, as a integrated full funnel destination for us, and we're going to manage share of voice, you need to be able to move your budget flexibly um, across retailers and between sort of e-commerce and marketing tactics. Um, and we also know that your, your um, spend thresholds have to be different or will be different depending on what's happening with um, the retailer, what's happening with the category, et cetera. Um, And so uh, a pretty dominant practice that we've seen is what we're calling budget fluidity or budget fluidity. It's not like (laughs) we made up those two words next to each other. Um, And it's about having sort of two buckets of budget. One is longer time horizon um, buckets that are maybe maybe these take three years um, to really show revenue on. So if you think of some of the fundamental technology underpinnings that you need to do e-commerce and digital marketing well. Um, There are a couple categories of software that are going to take you, you know, three years for you to see um, your investment back. But then at the same time, you want to have a a tranche of investment that you can reallocate in an ongoing basis. So every two weeks for Amazon, um, some of our brands run two-week evaluation processes with the flexibility to move funds between retailers or between tactics on a particular retailer. Um, Another member brand runs a six-week budget allocation process. Uh, And one of our members said to us, um, within that six-week allocation process, um, they can range between 5% to 25% of A&P investment, depending on the opportunity and the situation. Um, And we found that this is really, it's hard, right? We're not pretending that what we're suggesting is easy, but it's really effective because you avoid a couple things. Um, You avoid overinvestments if you're combining sort of looking at a share of voice perspective rather than sort of just saturating your functional goals like ROAS and sales, which is like top and bottom of the funnel. Um, And then you avoid underperformance by realizing where it is that you could be using your budget for the most impactful outcome. And you're able to, you know, sort of flex as the conditions of the market change. Super interesting. And so do you have a view of some of the members around, you said two buckets of budget, one longer term and one that has that dynamic movability what the split between those two buckets should be? You know, we didn't get into percentages um, Hmm. in terms of the split. It was more the type of investment. So if I'm going to be very literal with you, 
um, and just because of, you know, the company that I work for, PIM, PXM, um, that's a long-term investment, right? So you know, there's a lot of setup, data mapping involved, and then, you know, it's going to take, like, even if you get up and running in, say, eight or nine weeks, um, the impact of that investment is going to take six, six months plus for you to realize based on what you invested up front. Now, if we go further out, um, like a consumer data platform <laughs> um, for creating better um, ad investments and ad campaigns, like that's that's going to run you a year plus, I think, right? Um, for you to start to see some economies of scale. Now, if you're doing um, something that is around the day-to-day investment and bids on... Uh, Keywords and Amazon real estate. I'm I'm guessing um, th- those are the kind of budgets that that move more fluidly and need to be paid attention to more frequently. Yep, gotcha. Great. And so, what's been the response so far from both the DSI and the general public who've read the report? I think the response has been um, kind of relief, like, oh, thank you for getting this out on paper because this is, I as an executive, now I'm pretending to be someone we talked to. (laughs) Uh, This is me pretending to be uh, one of the executives that I speak with. Um, I, executive, am feeling relief because these are instincts that I had or have about how I should be managing my business, but my colleagues feel like it's a power play for me to argue that e-commerce and marketing need to sit together, or I'm making trouble by challenging our budgeting process as insufficient versus what I'm trying to accomplish with my, you know, digital shelf or or digital growth um, agenda. So it, it's interesting how quickly. Um, what, what makes sense pragmatically becomes like mired in, in, in politics and opinions. So there's this like relief that this is a common shared opinion and best practice on, amongst people that are wanting to change the way that their companies operate. And then there's like a bit of, and then Chris pipe in, there's a bit of like fear as in, oh my God, this is a really big thing. Like none of these things that we've said are, ta-da, the answer is something. Easy. Silver bullet. Yeah. No silver bullet. (laughs) (laughs) And I get like, just work with your marketing team. Um, And I will say things like duct tape yourselves together. Like even if you, even if you know that an organizational transformation is not in your near future, nor should it be. And, you know, by the time you do it, it's too late. Like act as if, right? Act as if that is the right thing to do and make it happen. You don't need any, you know, approval from someone mm. on an org chart to just do good work like that. Chris, what, what's been the reactions you've had? Sim- similar. And, and again, some of this is validating, right? I mean, like, again, it, it builds that sense of I'm not alone, right? And, and again, I wasn't doing this for ego. I was doing this to save our company, right? I'm doing this. Maybe that sounds a little dramatic, but I, I want us to survive. I want to be employed by this company in five plus years um, or 10 plus years, you know, if we're on the Sears and Kmart plan, right? You know, um, we, we might last a little longer, um, but I, I want to last, right? I want us to survive and thrive. And so, but somebody, some, some had asked, like, if I only could do one, which would be the most important one. And I think, I actually think that sales and marketing integration and common goals would actually tee up all the other things that we're think that, that we talked about. Um, because, and this kind of goes back to, if everyone is aligned 
and dedicated to the same ultimate outcome. If you don't know the solutions or the strategies that get you to that outcome, you figure it out, right? Like there was a point where all of us were dedicated to something new. I, I mean, there was a day 10 plus years ago when I joined the e-tailing special project at Reckitt and I had no idea how e-commerce worked. And guess what? I figured it out. Like, was I perfect overnight? No, 10 years of constant learning. Like, and I still learn myself, but like I was dedicated to it. The success of my career and my job and our goals were my, were my outcome, my, you know, my lag outcome. And so I figured it out. I sought the education. I sought the mentorship. I experimented, I tested and learned. Now, again, not everybody has all the freedoms all overnight when they're suddenly dedicated to new KPIs, but it's not simple to do, but it's a simple concept. If you align your goals across the teams that currently are siloed or separate or maybe sometimes contentiously working against each other on different time cycles, um, long and short term, as we said, between marketing and sales, respectively, you align them. And now we're all the same number of degrees away from Kevin Bacon and we can go get Kevin Bacon. Like, And so <laughs> even if we have to figure some things out along the way, like what our differentiated portfolio looks like or what our budgeting practices need to be or how we can be more price proactive, right? So I do think, and, and I, what's interesting is Target, again, not, a, not an, a global retailer, but a very prominent national retailer in the US achieved almost 23% growth for the entire company in Q1 of their fiscal Q1 this year on top of the pandemic growth from last year. How did they do that? They have had enterprise merchants for online and offline for multiple years. So they were primed for a world that went digital because they were already being measured on wherever the growth is gonna come from, stores or digital. And they pivoted the stores to enable the digital growth without forgetting about stores either. Um, and so Walmart just did that last year and we're starting to see that pay off for them too. And so if the retailer is doing it, no one said it was easy, but we need to do it because we're, we're, and we, Target and Walmart already expect that from us now as commercial partners. They don't want siloed, disaggregated teams, but it's going to take more of those happening. But the proactive early movers here in, in CPG and in, in consumer goods who move that direction, who are going to find themselves accelerating just as fast as those challenger and digital brands. So um, I think... Again, none of this is easy to do, but it's but it, it feels validating to hear that I can articulate these four points and there is a path. So it's a lot it's a it's a lot to take a bite out of, but validating nonetheless. So let's um, just wrap things up here. Uh, the report, which you both co-authored, Total Growth Accountability, we'll link up to in the show notes for everyone to read that full report. Um, just curious for, for both of you, what are you excited about in the world of e-commerce right now? Start with Molly. Um, I'm excited about the possibility of moving to a better way to choose what imagery works on the digital shelf. I think the digital shelf on a retailer destination has a long way to go in terms of preserving brand integrity, appealing to different types of folks. So um, technologies like Visit, um, where they use publicly available data to 
predetermine what image will be highest performing um, will help us get there and help people understand that, you know, the digital shelf is, you know, the DNA of your brand as well. Interesting. And Chris, what's, what are you excited about in the world of e-commerce right now? I'm, and, and I'm not trying to tie this back to the report explicitly, but I really think at the end of the day, and I'm sure all of us have faced this before, whenever a company or leaders say, here are our priorities, there's this like laundry list of priorities. And it's really hard, like you can't do everything. So you've got to like, you've got to organize people around leading and lagging metrics, right? Leading actions that this team can do versus the other team, but that all drive the ultimate outcome that we want. And so I do think this idea of total growth accountability and merging teams and goals and KPIs and getting the data, uh, data is always a challenge, but getting that data helps drive a sense of like, let, let's not try to task each person with 30 different priorities. Let's give each person the two and a half or three that they really can own um, not to make their their jobs or careers boring or anything, but like let's give them the thing they can actually go control to get the outcome that they can influence, right? As opposed to trying to put, I, I see so many people who have lagging outcomes or metrics as their main goal that they can't directly control. Um, they they can influence if they do other things, but that's not what's prioritized. It's just the outcome. I think that is kind of exciting to see because that's going to move us in the direction that we want to go as, a, as an industry and for the leaders that win. The other thing that's really interesting, I just think, is like this, how different retailers and, and different players that they're trying to solve the last mile and some of the creative models of um, th this idea of not ride hailing like Uber, but store hailing like RoboMart in, in California, while it's a startup and it's a, it's a pilot, you can hail a pharmacy store to come self-drives up to your house or a, or a convenience store. So instead of having a, a, an order delivered to me, the store shelf is delivered to me and I, sh and I shop from it. And so it'd be really interesting um, in addition to also having, what if my pantry or my fridge was actually a vending machine to some degree and nothing in it was owned by me until I use it. And then and so the last mile is solved because it's already sitting in my house and it's managed by the retailer system so that somebody comes in and makes sure that it's pruned of anything that's expired or that's not being consumed. And now the digital shelf is the physical shelf in my house. And so what does paid search look like in my fridge, right? Or in my, in my pantry? And that might be several years away and it may not be a full global national scale, but it's a really interesting concept of solving for some of that impulse and that, you know, obviously now a retailer almost has like your cell phone carrier level integration into your life, right? They're like embedded into your home. Your home is smart now, enabled by Walmart or enabled by Tesco or enabled by Amazon. And so um, there's uh, that that's coming in the future, but we're already seeing pilots out there and, and kind of the, the early threads of what that looks like. And so I, I think that's going to be really interesting. Excellent. Um, Molly, can you tell us um, a little bit about the Digital Shelf Institute and where people can go to uh, keep up to date with what the good work that you're doing there? Sure. So the Digital Shelf Institute is at www.digitalshelfinstitute.org. And it is open to anyone and everyone who want to participate in an industry-wide conversation. We have a podcast. We have... Um, webinars, we have blog posts, we have interviews with awesome people like Kiri and Chris. 
Um, and then as a subset of the Digital Shelf Institute, we have an invite only group that I referred to earlier, which is where this research came from called the Digital Shelf Institute Exec Forum. And this is for anyone, customers, non-customers of Salsify, um, thought leaders, uh, entrepreneurs, astronauts who want to talk about the future of commerce. Um, and in order to get to us, this little group, um, you can go to the digital shelf institute.org and click under executive forum and then apply for your seat as part of our discussion. We'd love to have you. Great. Thank you. And Chris, can you um, tell us a bit about First Mover and uh, what you're up to and where to find you? Yeah. Uh, so First Mover is uh, we are e-commerce empowerment and education powered by community of practice. So um, we are very much a, an organization trying to drive industry level and custom education programs to help you, the First Movers, the leaders of change out there, bring your whole organization along um, but by kind of democratizing e-commerce uh, training, actionable educational programs. And so we offer uh, two to three events per month um, on different retailers and advanced strategies in the space. And then we do a lot of custom training programs um, from, you know, from small groups to like hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people internally, globally. So we would love, um, you know, we're always available at firstmover.com. Um, you can see our industry calendar and then you can email us and get in touch with us. We're also on LinkedIn, um, but we're, we're here to help you bring everyone else along for the journey because obviously you can't do it alone. And so we're here to empower you with the knowledge to win, but also the organizations to help them move in the right direction with you. Excellent. Well, thank you both for joining me today. And we'll link up to the Total Growth Accountability Report, Digital Shelf Institute and First Mover in the show notes. Thank you both for joining me so much. And I'm sure that we'll be collaborating again very soon. Thanks, Kiri. Thank you. Thank you.